Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. Just got a nice compliment on these. These usually don't get a whole lot of views, but uh, some some of you who like these really like these a lot better than my other videos. It's very. I was just ch I was just chattering on Twitter about Google Analytics and trying to figure out why, what, how, impact. Anyway, shut up and make the video. This is a Christmas Eve video, even though it's happening Christmas Eve morning. And per my usual pension for poor judgment, we're going to talk about catastrophe. Because catastrophe has been in vogue. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot has a video series on Daily Wire called The End of the World, which I've been enjoying. Um, and Jordan Peterson had a talk with Neil Ferguson, who I didn't know anything about. But I've also been enjoying his book, Doom. Um, if you look around, I think I'm not the only one who enjoys catastrophic, dystopian kinds of thinking. We're, we're energized, motivated, captivated by impending disaster and the end of the world. Now, those of you who have been following my sermons through this Advent season might have noticed that we've solely been, we've basically been tracking the slow-moving destruction, calamity, apocalypse, depending on how we want to use that word, of Israel. Hosea, the Lord comes to Hosea and says Israel's been a faithless wife or a rebellious son, and the northern kingdom is going to be taken out and eaten by the Assyrians, never really to be seen again. And then eyes will fall on the southern kingdom that um, is just as bad. And even, even Josiah's reformation won't last long. And Jeremiah, poor prophet Jeremiah, nothing goes well for him. He gets dragged off to Egypt after he says, don't go. And they're like, oh, we're taking you with us. And in many ways, that's the story of the Bible. Especially if you sort of stop at Malachi. Boy, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a sad story. One of the nice points about Jonathan's piece in the da uh, little program in the Daily Wire is he points out that worlds sort of fractal down. There's, um, there's my world. Someone, maybe they suffer a tragedy. Maybe they lost a spouse or a child or a job or something like that or their health. And they'll say, my world ended that day. Our, our worlds are, are sometimes little things, sometimes large things. They're sometimes personal. They're sometimes familial. They're sometimes institutional. They're sometimes local. And they're sometimes global. And often when we talk about the end of the world, it's big or it's small. And actually that Neil Ferguson book goes, goes into that. And Jonathan goes into that. We, it, it's, it's sort of hard to know what we're talking about. And and last week we looked at Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple and how some of the some of the older priests weeped when the new temple was put up and and Herod himself sort of complained about Cyrus and Darius and said, "Yeah, they built the temple too small." And then of course the Romans came and destroyed the temple. Jesus of course um, at the trial, we learned that that phrase, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And everybody wondered what he's talking about. And of course, he was talking about his body. This week, one of the videos that I spent a fair amount of time on was a really amazing conversation between three thinkers, Daniel Smachtenberger, um, John Verveke, and Ian McGilchrist. Now, I know John Verveke. I went to an, an event with Ian McGilchrist when I was in London. 
which was was really rather lovely. I didn't go up and shake his hand or anything, but seems like an absolutely lovely man. Daniel Smachtenberg sort of introduced this by talking about the meta crisis because. Whereas, let's say, many of the people at Living Stones who will hear this sermon will recognize that for years they've been anxious about a nuclear annihilation, we seem to have added a whole number of other things to our list of things that um, may possibly kill us and compiled on top of each other almost seems certainly to do so in the future. We've got all sorts of anxieties. Not only do we have nuclear annihilation, which certainly hasn't gone away, we're looking at war in the Ukraine, worried about that spreading, wondering if China will attack Taiwan and, and what that would do. Uh, always concerned about economic collapse. The government seems to keep printing money, and we wonder how sustainable is this national debt. Um, there's ecological collapse, which, of course, has been something that's been in the news for a decade or more now. Global warming, before that, it was sort of a new ice age back and forth. Um, all the wonder of antibiotics has brought forth the spectrum of superbugs. And, of course, we just had the, the COVID pandemic that we're, we're still kind of getting used to. I had COVID two weeks ago. And so, and then when you start talking about artificial, artificial intelligence and other technologies like nanobots, this idea of the great filter that part of the reason we don't find all these other alien societies in space is because... Once societies reach a certain level of economic um, uh, economic superiority, they, they sort of collapse in on themselves. To add to this, one of the ones that's really getting quite popular now is population collapse. If you look around the world, it seems that hardly anyone is able to manage to keep a sustainable population. And People will hear that and they'll say, oh, well, haven't we been worried about overpopulation? It's like, yeah, that was the worry. And of course, there's a lot of questions about population size and, and ecology. But this, this whole idea about population collapse really has a lot to do with economics because most of our system, for example, of taking care of the elderly are all based on the fact that there will be certain number of young, healthy workers and a limited pool of older workers. And once those things get inverted, well, suddenly you have situations like in Detroit or Japan where you have all of these empty houses that nobody wants to live in. In Japan, they can't even, in fact, give these houses away. This, this population collapse brings economic collapse, brings geopolitical unrest, brings chaos, brings wars. And if you think, well, I have private investments, well, when the general economy goes down because there's not just that, not that many people buying products, well, then your stocks are going to go down too. So even if we avoid all the other ones at this point, there's been really no solution to this. And it seems kind of a catch-22 because, well, if you're going to try and grow the population, you have those problems there. And if you let it shrink, you have those problems there. It's problems on every side. Now, one of the things that this Doom book brought out, which, which was quite interesting, is that, in fact, these anxieties have been with almost every human civilization for as long as we've had recorded civilization. Worlds have ended all over the place, partly because they scale. But in just about every society, they've had one scenario or another by which everything sort of ends, from the gods or or 
you know, the, part of the reason that the Aztecs, for example, butchered so many people and had human sacrifice was believed that's what, that's what was required to keep the world going. Now, more often than not, as in the Aztec example, uh, the political leadership is always trying to prevent the world from ending, and usually their politics kind of contributes to it. And that's been a common theme throughout history. We saw some of that with COVID. I mean, did the government really know what to do? Vaccines, no vaccines, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Remember two weeks to flatten the curve in March of 2020? Two weeks? China, of course, had their zero COVID policy, and that was a disaster. Now, in terms of decline, governments are trying to pay people to have babies, and absolutely zero of those programs around the world have helped. So worlds are always failing and disappearing and ending, and this happens with big things on the news like, in, in a sense, 9-11 ended one world and began another. The, the death of John F. Kennedy ended one world and began another. The Spanish invasion of Latin America ended one world and begat another. Civilizations rise and fall, and human beings go along for the ride. Now, the brightest and the best of us talk about these things. And usually all of the responses are, well, we need, we need people to do the right thing, to be generous to each other, to not take advantage of the weak, to not overconsume. But so many people acting on their own self-interest and the interest of their group, but collectively this creates the unintended consequences that seems to put in place the cycles that threaten us. And so then sometimes we sort of grasp for a centralized authority to do the right thing. But more often than not, so many of the totalitarian regimes were exactly that. Well, we're going to save the world in this way and we're going to make you do it. Now, Ian McGilchrist, who I've probably never mentioned in a sermon, um, is an English thinker. And he was a medical doctor and a psychiatrist and a philosopher, all these all these different things. Brilliant, brilliant man. He wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary, where he talked about the two halves of the brain. And he said that the left brain is the emissary. It, it's the one this thing that spends, pays attention to details and trying to get things right and trying to organize and control. And I'm, I'm, it's a great reduction of it. The right brain is sort of the master. It has is able to look at open questions, it's able to manage unknowns. And, and actually, if the two parts of the brain work together properly, it, it's, that's how we function. But this emissary brain has also sort of scaled up and become kind of a communal brain for all of us. And so when we look at all of the dooming of the world, we begin to realize that, well, it all involves more control and, and more centralized command and more technology and more, 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 more when it's sort of like trying to resolve a flood by adding water because... All of our grasping after insured, secured solutions are emissary left brain types of thinking. And it's our own survival grasping that has led to the current catastrophes and all of the dilemmas that we face. Neil Ferguson, in his book again, says, well, that's kind of always the way it's been. And of course, you saw this throughout Israel's history as we marched through the different groups of people all in this slow motion collapse of what seemed to be God's reclamation project for the world. The Bible is the story about the end of the world, end of big worlds and little worlds. Humanity is the emissary and God is the master of masters, 
But right from the start in the Garden of Eden, the emissary had trust issues with the master and thought, can we really trust the master if we can only get things under control? If only we had knowledge of good and evil, if only we had technology, if only, if only we had could if only we could dominate our neighbors and make them do the right thing, if only we had sticks enough and carrots enough, then suddenly the world would be right. God rescues Israel from Egypt. God gives Israel the law. Says, well, you just tell us, God, what to do, and then we discover we can't do it. Israel again and again finds itself in bondage, even in the land of promise. The temple is destroyed, rebuilt, rebuilt again, but the bondage doesn't end. It just takes different forms, and then the temple is destroyed, and it all seems to go again and again. Now, this is Christmas Eve, and we're going to read the Christmas Eve sermon. Or the, we're going to read the Christmas Eve story. And part of the reason I frame my sermons the way I do is I want you to hear the story in a certain way. Because if you came into church with, you know, the Christmas decorations up and you're looking to hear the nice story, and well, you're going to hear it. But it's helpful to remember when the story was given. And the reason we've been walking through the prophets in Advent all the way up to Jesus is because by the time Jesus comes, things seem very lost indeed. And people are looking for God to come and rescue them, like we always do. And most of our prayers and most of our attempts at rescue are all about, Lord, if you would only take care of these people over there, or this problem over there, or this thing over there, then the world would be okay. And most of the time, this is a giant projection of our big ideas of what's good, bad, right, and wrong, somehow foisted on the rest of the world. And we don't take a pause to think about the fact that that's how we got into this mess. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Well, why? Well, that's a very, that's a very left brain, that's a very emissary brain thing to do. Well, we're going to count all the people. Well, why? So we can tax them. So we can organize them. So we can wield them. So we can make sure that they're all doing what they should do. Because Caesar Augustus knows best, probably the world's most successful politician. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Here is Israel, God's chosen land, God's promised people. And, and now, due to political and taxation requirements of yet another blood-stained pagan potentate, the people of God have to do the will of this pagan emperor. And even the descendants of the great King David, who, who lifted them from the yoke of the Philistines, well, a man after God's own heart, where's that project? It matters not that Joseph's betrothed wife was great with child. She has to make the journey too. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, she's not there with her mother 
or an aunt or a trusted cousin, to the, to the best of our knowledge. She's there with her betrothed husband. And there's no home. Oh, oh, cousin Mary and, and her betrothed Joseph is coming. And so, and she's great with child. Let's have everything ready. No, not a lot of, not a lot of good ready for her. For her first child, she's not with mother or aunt to help, and no one seems in to inconvenience themselves to offer her just a bit of dignity and comfort. She gives birth in a place where animals are kept, and the cleanest place to lay her baby down after the exhaustion of giving birth is a feeding trough for the animals. Now, some of you out there have given birth, and others of you out there have been with your wives when they've given birth, and... You have a picture of that. All of my children were born in nice, clean hospitals with clean linens and doctors and nurses and all of that. Just think about this scene. Mary, Joseph, don't know if anybody else was there, in a stable. And the best they could do, because obviously after all the exertion of having a child, the best you can do is a place to put them in a feeding trough. And again, let's give the skeptics their due. This is what the master's plan for world salvation looks like? You know, what, what about a chariot of fire? What about, what, about, uh, what about some divine intervention? I mean, would it be too much to ask for at, at least what Mary has done? There are shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David has been born to you a Savior. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It's quite a sign. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, there's no purple beam of light coming up from this, coming up from this stable, like we have from the Kings game when they win. But it seems God just couldn't hold back on everything. And so he sends in the angels. And he doesn't send them to the synagogue rulers or the important people in Jerusalem. And he doesn't seem to um, tell all of those people. Now, in Matthew, of course, you get the magi. You get the pagans, the outsiders. He sends them to shepherds, kind of at the bottom strata of society. People who, you know, perhaps that's basically the job that you could do. And they're terrified. You know, night after night, they're out there watching the sheep, making sure that nothing happens to the sheep, making sure they're all accounted for. And this time, angels show up. And they can't stand it. Usually, when one angel shows up, everybody hits the ground and sort of loses their stuff. Now you've got a whole sky for them. And they probably just don't know what to do with themselves. Now, the beam isn't lit from earth to heaven. This is the master sending his emissaries down and saying, we've got an announcement to make, and we're going to bless you with it, shepherds. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that is about to happen, which the Lord has told us about. 
So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Now, with a story like this, we begin to imagine that, well, certainly this must have changed them, that all these shepherds would have been permanently transformed by the message of these angels. Well, they certainly seemed to pass the word around, and everybody got quite excited about it, but about 30 years from now, when we've finally meet Jesus again as he starts his public ministry, we don't necessarily find all these shepherds showing up. It's like how many miracles in the world? They grab all the attention right away and people think about it. And Can you really believe shepherds? Or some are just amazed by it. Maybe this is something, but then, oh, regular life starts again and you get back down to business. The shepherds are clearly moved and people seem to believe their stories. And apparently the stories linger because Luke somehow heard it. But it doesn't change us in the direct way we imagine it should. This isn't very emissary-like. I'm sure many people would have thought, well, if God's going to send a bunch of angels down, don't send them down to sing, send them down to fight and maybe clear those Romans out. But he doesn't. He sends them down to sing, and the shepherds hear it, and they're terrified. And then they remember being terrified, and they're excited about it, and they tell everyone, but what difference does that seem to make? I mean, if God's going to move, why move with a choir? Does that seem to make a difference? Now, Mary seems to keep her head through this. She seems to be wise and patient. She ponders, wondering, knowing enough about what she doesn't know, and she just watches. Now, we so long for the salvation widget that we can wield and relieve us of all of our dooms. We want the answer to this and the answer to that, and we want it the, the response centrally located as high up on a hierarchy as we can, and we want governments involved, and maybe police will make sure it happens. And, and one way or another, we will secure for ourselves and our posterity the kind of prosperity and security that we think we want. And all of this wielding just continues to lead up and pile on the doom. Now, the strangeness of this story doesn't stop with the fact that the shepherds' testimonies to angelic messaging doesn't change the rational hearts and minds of human beings. Yeah, we get all excited about it and the stories linger, but the Romans are still there and people still die. And of course, you're talking the first century, so average life expectancy is in the 30s. That doesn't mean that everybody dies at 30. It just means that a whole lot of people hardly ever get to 30. Jesus spends 30 years just living as a young Jewish man without making too big of a splash, as far as we can see. There's that temple incident that Luke records, but beyond that, not a lot. He has his Galilean moment when people get jazzed up about his potential, and just then, maybe then, the whole emissary brain will get into action and say, well, if Jesus can draw a crowd, and if Jesus can still a storm, then he can make a storm, and that can take out a Roman fleet. And if Jesus can raise the dead, 
with a word, then maybe he can make Roman soldiers dead with a word, and maybe that will fix it. And maybe if he goes into Jerusalem, he won't even have to kill anybody, because just sort of like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, if he wasted a town or two, he could walk up to Jerusalem and say, ah, surrender, I'm in charge now. And wouldn't that bit very much be sort of the left-brain, emissary-like way of addressing all of those first-century problems that everybody agreed they had? And none of it happens. And of course, a lot of people look at the fact that it didn't happen that way. So of course, Jesus wasn't a Messiah. What kind of Messiah doesn't get results? David got results. The Maccabees got results. What about Jesus? Listening to a podcast recently with some of my Jewish friends, noting that, why are there so many Johns around? Why are all the name repetition? Well, it's because... Everybody loved the Maccabees. They were so impressed at what they did to the Greeks, and maybe, just maybe, someone will do it to the Romans, and Jesus seemed to have so much potential. But then he throws it all away by heading to Jerusalem. His disciples were smart enough to say, no, that's a bad idea. And he falls into the hands of the two most powerful groups, they were warring with each other, but the thing that they could agree on is that Jesus was in the way, so we're best just to get rid of him. Even if we have to trump up charges and Pontius Pilate, by no means a paragon of justice, says, yeah, okay, do what you want with him, I don't care. And they put him on a cross to do away with him. Now, he doesn't die as people would expect. He's not cursing people from the cross. He's not cursing out his enemies. He's not cursing his own existence. He's forgiving those doing it. And then he says to God, why have you forsaken me? Well, I thought you were tight with God. What, what, what on earth is going on with this strange man? And then, of course, the story gets stranger because his disciples claim that he rose from the dead and hung out with them over the course of a number of weeks. And then they claim he ascended into heaven and now rules over creation, rules over, well, if you're ruling over Judea, why don't you now clear out the Romans? He didn't pop over to gloat over, gloat over Pontius Pilate or the Sanhedrin or Herod, although it appeared to 500. He ascends to heaven. And from there, his followers, who look more hapless than the shepherds, proceed to start something that overturns Rome. Not with armies and with bloodshed or miraculous storms and swords, but bit by bit, often through slaves and women, and history gets rewritten, and our moral imagination gets rewritten, and here we are 2,000 years later celebrating his very strange coming and birth. And those of us in church are declaring him to be Lord of all, reigning from heaven. Now that's very strange. Alexander the Great, very left brain emissary, conquer the world. Genghis Khan, make lots of babies. All of these political leaders and military leaders changing history and change history they did. Jesus seems to do it as a baby in a manger and eventually, someone killed on a cross. Now, if there's one thing to deduce from this world, it's that it really doesn't work the way we think it should. We, and 
don't get me wrong. I mean, John Verveke is a friend of mine. I have a world of respect for Ian McGilchrist. I don't really know Daniel Smachtenberger, but all of these things are good things to do. Talk about these ideas. Try to find solutions. Try to fix things. Try to try to inspire people to do better. All of those things are good, and the church does them all the time, and I do them all the time. But the one interesting thing about this conversation is they kept, when they talked about the master and the emissary, they kept talking about the fact that the thing is, you can't really get people to love the sacred by force because if you sort of coerce them by the threat of the sword, then it doesn't really get you what you want, which is free, willing, cheerful, obedience, and doing the right thing. It's heart transformation, and that's where we always get stuck because doggone it, it's awfully hard to change your enemy's heart. But that, of course, is exactly what Jesus does. And he doesn't do it with a sword. He does it with his own death. And the, pat and the, and the way he does this starts right there at his birth. No place, nobody had a place for them. They had no comfort. There they were with the animals in a manger, and that's how the story starts. We sort of manage to fix some things and sometimes, but a lot of the times our fixes make bigger messes. Jesus didn't seem to be fixing anything at all, and over the last 2,000 years has seemed to fix way more things than we could possibly imagine. And the other point is, why are we so surprised by our doom? All of us meet our personal end. There's absolutely no question about that. Death and taxes, right? All of us know that at some level, we as individuals are doomed, at least from the perspective of our, of our little lives. None of us gets out of this story alive. We all then try to create a world in some other way to try to cheat death or the age of decay, but eventually that always fails too. This same man, for whom the angels sang, rewrote the history of the world and offers us a way into a better story still connected with this one. He says, I raise my friends, you know. Do you want to come with me? Do you want to reign over the next world? And we scratch our heads skeptically and think, we've been trying to reign over this one. And he says... I'll have to change you, you know. You will be changed. He offers this to his friends. And then he offers, if you're not his friend yet, to befriend you. Now the real question is, which world were you sort of hoping to hold on to? Because, well, I love things of this world too. I love my church. I love my family. I love living in Sacramento. I love my family out east. I love my new friends all over the world via the internet. And because of this man born in a manger, I not only have hope for me and hope for them, but a belief that somehow he's a world saver. That somehow, we can read about this, and I didn't put the slide up, we can read about this in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, that somehow he rescues us. And he, go, he rescues us from death, and he rescues us from the age of decay. 
but but he does so in such a strange manner and in so many ways in such a lovely manner that most of the time we're the ones taking offense is this world you've been living in really the one you were hoping for my guess is no what if someone offered you a better one would you take it then you have to ask the question, could you trust him? What would it take for him to earn your trust? Because that's really what faith is. And then if he, in, if he invites you to trust him, will you take it? I think that's really the important question of this and every Christian holiday season. Amen. <laughs>